In 2022, women in the United States earned an average of 82% of what men earned. 82 cents on every dollar. That's a nearly 20% disparity. And those numbers have remained consistent in the United States for the last 20 years. Maybe there's a strong case to be made that forces that hold back women from achieving equitable standing in American society has a lot less to do with perceptions and more to do with systems, less to do with morality, and more to do with dollars and cents. While the World Economic Forum says that we are 150 years away from achieving gender equity at work, our guest today says it's achievable in this lifetime. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We are joined today by Katika Roy. Katika is a gender economist and the CEO and founder of Pipeline Equity, an award-winning analytical platform designed to help organizations improve their equity and inclusivity efforts beyond the talk and with real action. As the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee, Katika is driven by a passion to eradicate economic inequality and champion the rights of refugees, women, and children. Among her many media appearances and published articles, Katika was also named a LinkedIn top influencer for gender equity in 2022. She's also a member of Fast Company's Impact Council and Bloomberg's New Economy Forum. Katika, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I wonder if we could start with your personal story, Katika. I'm sure our listeners' ears peaked, uh, perked up, I should say, when they heard that you're the daughter of an immigrant and a refugee. And other than the obvious answer, which is that it had everything to do with everything, I think that tends to happen when we talk about our lineage. I'm curious about how you feel like your family history has shaped your outlook and what would become your future mission as a gender economist today. Yeah, it's a great question. It has a lot to do with it. Um, so my my mom was the immigrant and my dad was the refugee. They're both passed on now. That's why, that's why I use the past tense. Um, my mom uh, was born in 1939, the year that World War II began, on the Isle of Guernsey, which is one of the Channel Isles of Britain. And in 1940, when France fell to the German forces, Prime Minister Churchill doubted his ability to defend the Channel Isles. And so he evacuated them. So if you've seen, you know, if, if listeners have seen um, The Darkest Hour or Dunkirk, that was what was happening right before he evacuated the Channel Isles. And my mother was 18 months old, the youngest of five children. She was uh, separated from her mother and four siblings, placed into an orphanage and then adopted a year later. And she would actually never see her own mother again. And when she was 21 and she was an emancipated adult, she emigrated to the United States for equality and opportunity. Um, one of the things that my, my mom wanted to go to university and my her adopted father, who they were very lovely people, but he was well-meaning. <laughs> he said to my mom, um, well, girls don't, women don't get an education. They become nurses or secretaries. And my mom just found that so offensive. Um, and then my, my father was a refugee. He actually escaped from Hungary after the fall of the 1956 revolution. 
And his decision was difficult, not only because he was risking his life, but also the lives of his three daughters. So my three old eldest siblings, um, who were three, seven and eight at the time. And they, with the help of Hungarian freedom fighters, actually walked across a minefield and crossed the border into Austria, where they arrived to a refugee camp. And less than two months into their stay in the refugee camp, President Eisenhower sent Air Force One to bring 21 Hungarian refugees to the United States on Christmas Day, 1956. And they were on that plane. So you can imagine, uh, you know, I'm a parent. I have a 12-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son. And you can imagine, you know, like as a parent, I wonder what that felt like for my father going from risking your daughter's lives to watching them climb the stairs of Air Force One to freedom. And uh, this, my parents' history, uh, particularly my father's, uh, was a huge part of my growing up. It was a story that we all knew. Um, President Eisenhower's library actually sent us copies of all the documentation, um, including the orders from President Eisenhower. And also the fact that, you know, I'm the youngest of six. So three of us were born here in the United States. And that in in addition to sort of the responsibility, if you will, of making something of yourself, there was the additional understanding that because we had been born in the United States, we had opportunities that were otherwise out of reach. And we had a responsibility to do something with those. And that's ultimately how... I ended up uh, becoming a gender economist, how I founded my company um, and all the different things that I talk about because I I sit here with you today because someone in a position of power who happened to be President Eisenhower said, not on my watch, this will not happen. And so my, uh, my responsibility and why I found a pipeline and why I do the broader work that I do is um, actually to say not on my watch, to actually make it better for uh, men and women, boys and girls coming after me. It's an amazing story. I wonder, Katika, if the responsibility that you spoke of, of making something of yourself, did that ever at any point feel like a pressure? Did it feel too big? (laughs) (laughs) It never felt too big. I did have to put it into perspective. That I think has been part of the learning of my adulthood. Um, You you know, um, I I would say there are two things. One is um, when things have gotten really hard, which is just a human experience, right? Everybody goes through hard times. um, That I think back to my DNA, like whose daughter am I? And I think about the decisions that both my parents made. Um, And if they can do that, I can do this. Right. That's Mm. what gives me a lot of like that. Those are my parents. The other piece was um, that I had to learn as an adult um, that I mattered, (laughs) that like that I matter equally to that responsibility. I think sometimes when you, when you have, whether it's an immigrant story or refugee story or something like that, right? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be that type of story, but something like that. There can be a sense of duty and responsibility, which is good. But if you overdo it, it's like, you don't matter. Right. right? And, and actually when you do that in the moment, it might feel good, 
but it actually doesn't serve yourself. Like you actually can't operate at your best if you don't have your own back, if you don't take care of yourself. That was something I definitely learned the hard way <laughs> and, and, you know, had to sort of recalibrate to uh, ensure that I was filling my own bucket, that self-care was a priority, that, um, you know, that I had my own back so that I could actually fulfill that responsibility at the highest level possible. Yeah. And so here you are these years later, having found that balance more or less and finding yourself, as we described in your bio, Katika, as a gender economist. Could you educate us for those who have maybe even never heard of that title? What is a gender economist and, and what does someone like a like you do as a gender economist? Yeah. So a gender economist essentially looks at the economy through the lens of gender. And when we talk about gender, um, when I talk about that, it's intersectional gender equity, which essentially means um, gender plus race and ethnicity and age, uh, so that you're really ensuring that inclusion is at its core. But for instance, um, the jobs report, the most recent jobs report that just came out, uh, that is something that I look at through the lens of gender. And one of the things that we know is that even for all the talk of like, um, uh, women have reached pre-pandemic levels of employment. Well, they actually haven't if you control for labor force participation and population growth. We still have just shy of a million women missing from the labor force since the beginning of the pandemic. And even though the number of job openings went down, so it dipped below 10 million last month, we still have about 1.6 jobs at open for every one person looking for a job. So it's a still a very tight labor market. So it's looking at things, you know, looking at that data through the lens of gender. And when we do that, I'll give you another example too, but when we do that, we see different solutions. So it's a, it's a more precise way of actually understanding a, a, a problem rather than yeah. it being super, uh, or maybe too, too generalizable or too broad being able to actually understand with more nuance and specificity about what is happening within a very diverse population when you're considering for different identities and experiences. Yeah, exactly. And and at the end of the day, it's in companies' interest to maximize the workforce, the labor force, right? The labor pool that you can pull from. And women are 58% of all college graduates. So they're definitely part of the population that you want to invest in. They're 47% of your labor base. So understanding not just the top level of unemployment, which is also a total another conversation we could have, because <laughs> unemployment being low can be good or bad. It's not always good, but people think it's good. Um, and uh, But then also really understanding, for instance, like what's the true unemployment rate for Black women? What's the true unemployment rate for Latinas? What's the true unemployment rate for all women? Like one of the things that we have consistently seen for Latinas is that, so the Fed, uh, which has gotten a lot of play with inflation and raising rates and bank failures and all sorts of things, um, they have a dual mandate of full employment and price stability. And full employment is uh, generally kind of in the mid 4% range. Um, and uh, for un like that unemployed population. But if you look at the data through the lens of gender, what we see is that Latinas still haven't recovered to full employment. 
So when you start to raise rates and slow down the labor market, you're actually, and, and folks like Latinas and black women uh, who haven't yet re- um, reached full employment are now going to be even more negatively impacted. Right. Right. So there's cumulative effects and, and when those decisions are made, which I guess when you're talking about the Fed, I guess like the Fed can't help but make decisions that are that are very big, very broad and, and kind of universally affect different groups disproportionately. Is that even fair to say? Well, kind of. They do. Part of their responsibility is to take into uh, into account different demographics. That is their responsibility. So and when they do that, we can ensure what has been talked about as a soft landing, which is essentially not having to break, like fully break the economy, <laughs> just stay with it, right? That, that you can create, you can curb inflation without having to put millions of people out of work, right? That there is a better solution. And so that's, those are the kinds of things that, that we advocate for. And in addition to that, which we can talk about uh, more, but are things like um, ensuring equity of opportunity at work, ensuring equitable skilling, that there are solutions to bringing those million women back to the labor force that are not just good for women, they're actually good for everyone. Yes. And I definitely want to ask you about how they're good for everyone, but I'd love to start breaking into understanding this idea of gender equity through, through something that I know that you advocate quite a bit for, Katika. And that's the benefit, as you say, of framing equity as an economic opportunity rather than a moral issue or the so-called, quote-unquote, yeah. right thing to do. Um, so could you tell us about like why is gender equity important to be framed as an economic opportunity as opposed to the idea that, like, well, this is just the right thing to do. This is something we should do. This is something that would just be fair for people, even though if, even if that's true, why is that ineffective and why is it more effective or more important to frame it as an economics issue? Yeah. So things that are um, fair or the right thing to do are often optional and particularly optional in the business world. You know, mm. uh, CEOs, um, their number one responsibility is to maximize shareholder value. That's their fiduciary responsibility. And uh, so reframing gender equity as an economic opportunity uh, actually then, so I'll give you an example. Pipeline actually started with research. We did research across 4,000 companies in 29 countries. And what we found was that for every 10% increase in intersectional gender equity, there was a 1% to 2% increase in revenue. And so that's the, that's the model the platform is based on. But when a CEO mm. looks at that, then it becomes a massive economic opportunity and reframes the conversation and puts it really at the core of one of the levers that CEOs can pull to maximize shareholder value. Um, it also moves us more broadly out of this um, us versus them uh, zero-sum thinking uh, in terms of equity, because um, like the, the economic pie is not fixed, right? So in the United States, we could increase, uh, we could add $3.1 trillion to the U.S. economy if we close the gender equity gap. I'll give you one example. You talked about the pay gap. Well, if we close the gender pay gap in the United States, we could add $512 billion to the U.S. economy. 
uh, that doesn't just impact me. That impacts you. And as an American taxpayer, you're actually subsidizing the pay gap because um, uh, women in particular who experience pay inequity are more likely to be on social welfare programs like Mm -hmm. Medicaid, like, um, uh, like SNAP and other benefits. And so if we close the gender pay gap, we actually reduce the reliance on programs like that. The second piece is there's been a lot of conversation around social security because it's had to start dipping into its reserves. Well, we could actually close the social security savings gap by a third if we close the gender pay gap. And that's because the majority of women in the workforce actually fall under the social security savings cap, like the social, the tax cap. And so that's not just good for me. That's good for you. That's good for anyone who thinks they might have a chance of actually receiving social security. Right. So there's, it's, it's, um, what I'm hearing is that there's, it's all, it's all connected. There's so many connections between this. And when we work or when we, when, when a, when a company, when a corporation, when a CEO of a major corporation starts to actually act towards gender equity, there are comprehensive benefits, not only for the bottom line in maximizing shareholder value, which, as you said, is their fiduciary responsibility. There's also knock-on effects for the economy. There's knock-on effects for how uh, programs are funded, uh, social service programs are funded in the United States. It sounds like it also, there's a direct, um, whether causation or correlation to um, helping uh, households with their expenses and with supporting children. Um, There's a number of things that we could go into uh, asking you about from here, Katika, because I wanted to you know, I wanted to talk with you about the breadwinner mom pay gap. Maybe we'll come around to that in a moment, but I want to stick with, I want yeah. to stick with, yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Well, I promise we'll come back to it because that's a really important thing to to account for too. But um, this, I want to go back to the idea of uh, the difference between framing gender equity as a moral issue or the right thing to do. Um, because when I hear that, the, I'm a, the former political scientist in me says, I know that that's a common critique of the Democratic Party these days, that the party's approach to national politics often gets criticized as prioritizing issues too much for being moral matters or the right things to do over something that's more pragmatic uh, like economics, which typically the Republican Party tends to to do better on issues-wise. And I wonder if this, this idea of uh, like the the like framing economics or framing I should say gender equity as a moral issue as opposed to an economics issue was on your mind when in 2019 you interviewed several uh, candidates for the Democratic nomination, including the the eventual nominee and now President Joe Biden. Is this something that you spoke with you spoke to with them directly, and and what was that experience like for you? Well, yeah, it, I did. It, it was, um, I think, you know, uh, well, what, it, it came from, um, it actually came from observing, I mean, I, my undergraduate degrees in political science with an emphasis in legal studies. So um, I was an intern in, in Washington, D.C. I, I was recruited to attend Oxford to study political philosophy and political theology. And so like this, you know, uh, that's like the mothership for me. And You're so, speaking my language, yeah. <laughs> Minus the invitation to Oxford, which I certainly did not receive, but the White House internship for for a brief time, and and that DC thing, yeah. and then yeah. And so, so um, 
obviously when there's primaries and, you know, I follow politics, right? And so one of the things that, and, and in 2019, there were a record number of women running in the Democratic primaries. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. And this had been after a historic run where we had the first female nominee to a major political party for president. And so um, I, uh, um, and so I, I, I watched and my observation was that the conversation around gender equity was largely missing from the debate stage. Like there was maybe some conversation around choice, maybe one person mentioned the pay gap and that was it. And, and at the same time, you had um, conversations happening about that, that were happening at the very same time around student loan forgiveness. And women hold 67% of all student loans. That's a gender that's, issue. That's, a bit, that's something I did not know until I started. I was exposed to your work. Healthcare, which is, uh, that's actually impacts men and women. Mental health is largely a men's issue. It doesn't mean that it doesn't impact women, but it is one of the ways that we are leaving men and boys behind in the United States. They account, they are four times more likely to die for, from suicide. They account for 79% of all suicides in the United States. We don't have enough coverage of mental health care providers, both like in numbers, in people, and we also don't cover it like as a right. And that we are leaving our boys and men behind because we're, we are not only are we not destigmatizing it, but we're not actually just giving access to have just like you, just like when president Obama passed um, health, you know, the ACA, what is now known as Obamacare, you, you, you took, there were 80, I think it was 80, 81 um, uh, essentially benefits like primary care that went down to zero copay that basically you could now go access that. And there was no financial impediment to getting taken care of for your health. We need something like that for mental health in the United States. So my observation of what was happening is that women and the gender equity conversation were largely being sidelined. And so I was like, wait a second, we need to have a conversation about this. So I reached out to, um, I, I ended up interviewing four of the candidates I reached out to all the campaigns, but I, I, which was uh, Vice President now Vice President Harris, uh, uh, President Biden, um, uh, Secretary Pete, uh, and uh, Senator Booker, and my, that this was my conversation because th- this was my conversation with them because um, what I wanted to understand is what w- should they be elected? Should they both be the nominee and be elected? What was their commit, commitment to applying the gender lens to all issues, not just the right to choose, not just equal pay, which is, which is often called gender mainstreaming. And our neighbor to the north, Canada, does this. It's called GBA, gender budgeting analysis at a federal level. And they look at every single policy to ensure that there isn't an adverse impact on women versus men or non-binary. And I... Um, and I will say like, I, and I live in the middle of the country, I live in Colorado, which is historically a purple state and president now president Biden's response was like, just totally on the money that, that every issue is a gender equity issue. And you can see that in the decisions that he's made, even if they haven't been explicitly called out. And I'll give you an examples of that. One, uh, one primary example is student loan forgiveness. 
because women hold 67% of all student loans. It's actually part of the pay gap. So, so the wage gap, we have less money coming into our wallets, but actually women have more money coming out. One of the, those ways is student loans. <clears throat> the other way is pink tax. But this is so important to understanding that if we apply the gender lens to all of these policy issues, it's actually better for everyone. Like it, they, we create better, more well-rounded, um, there's the dogs, policies. <laughs> They're getting involved. If they keep barking, I'll put them, I'll put them away, but. <laughs> it's okay. It's quite all right. Yeah. There's, there's so much there, Katika. Um, and thank you for that. So, it sounds like when you when you interviewed future nominee, future president Joe Biden, that he that he said the right things. In the few years of his, do it though. Can I give you one thing before you ask me the question? Please. I had the opportunity to meet his sister, Valerie Biden, and she wrote the book "Growing Up Biden." And if you if listeners haven't bought it, they should buy it. But but she has been his campaign manager since he like ran for eighth grade class president. That's cool. And I actually believe, I have a hypothesis, um, I should say that as a researcher, that her, their proximity has a lot to do with his understanding of gender issues, because she has been with him through his political, his entire political career. I, I think it's a sound hypothesis. It does seem, not being an expert on on President Biden by any stretch, but it does seem that the his immediate family circles and the impact of his immediate family's relationships on him has carried over into how he's he's thought about policy as president certainly too um that's a really interesting thought yeah and and i, I was just curious for your for your opinion about how the biden administration has been doing in in the years since you made the point the excellent point um astonishing and worth saying a third time that what is it 67 percent of student loan debt is is held by those who identify as women um and like you said there's there's a two-sided effect right where less income already adversely affects women's economic standing more expense, greater expenses, more loans over time. It, I really see this. I mean, it seems like it's really like an intergenerational wealth thing too. If you if if you then connect the 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 issues that we're talking about to something like uh, the breadwinner mom pay gap, can you can you tell us a little bit? Educate us about what that means in in your research. Sure. So I you know I will say like um, so I am a breadwinner mom. I've been a bread I've been a sole breadwinner mom for fifteen years. And, um, and so the, the experiences that, and I'll talk about the pay gap research that I did, sure. but the experiences that we have as breadwinner moms in the workforce is similar, but substantively different than women in the workforce. And the reason is that we have this assumption, um, about mom's income that it's the myth of secondary income, that, that our income is just for purses and shoes. It's not for things like housing and healthcare and food and clothing and for our kids, et cetera. And so what happens is that women, there's a, it's called mommy tracking. So women, there's a perspective that women are less committed to their jobs because they're moms. And that's actually not what the research shows. 
and, and also women receive a pay reduction for every child they have. It's about four cents. Uh, and so, yes. And so, um, so what actually what the research shows is that working moms are the most productive employees over the course of their career. So if there's anyone you want to invest in, it's moms, particularly right. breadwinner moms, because an investment in a breadwinner mom is not just an investment in them. It's actually an investment in 40% of the future labor force. So moms- 40%, are the, 40%, 40%. Yeah, moms are the breadwinners in 40% of US households with children under the age of 18. There's 16 million breadwinner moms. They support 28 million children. And um, so <laughs> they are the norm. Even though we don't talk about them, they're the norm. And what we, what I, I was interested in the breadwinner mom pay gap. So we did research around that. And what we found was that uh, as a cohort, breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap of any cohort of women in the workplace, which is 66 cents on the dollar. And when you look at that through uh, gender, like an intersectional lens, so gender plus race and ethnicity, black breadwinner moms have the largest gender pay gap of any women in the workforce. It's 44 cents on the dollar. And black breadwinner moms have supported the majority of all children for the last 40 years. Wow. So we are leaving out million, like 40% of our future labor force because we haven't fixed this issue. It's, it's astonishing. And it's, it's, uh, I'm getting overwhelmed, but, and, and, and very, and I'm very thankful. <laughs> um, and, and our, our listeners won't be able to see me when uh, shaking my head and rolling my eyes and, you know, just about like, just about fainting in my seat at all these statistics. Um, the sense that I'm getting, if we kind of zoom out for a second, Katika, I'm getting the sense that this is that, so words that stand out, ideas that stand out, interconnected, mm-hmm. uh, comprehensive. Yeah. The next word I want to ask in the form of a question, fixable. Yes. What what do we what do we do? So I want to take this in one of two directions, and I want to give you runway to to go with this because I because I do want to ask you about pipeline equity and and the pragmatic ways that you've created uh, analytical software and a service to help companies um, of a certain scale. I'm imagining, but maybe not um, approach equity issues and diversity, equity, inclusivity issues. And making it about the dollars and cents, so they actually see the the economic imperative and and that the benefits that that reaps, um, you know, for their employees, for their bottom line, and so forth. But I'm also curious to take the conversation in a direction of how do we make this better socially? It, it, do we are, are we as individuals are we reliant on CEOs to see the benefit in this? Are we reliant on presidential candidates? to be making the the policy changes and we of course elect them where where do we focus on uh, w- with these comprehensive issues what what comes to mind for you and i know it's like there is no magic wand to be to be waved around here but from your point of view from your vantage point where ought we as a society focus the energy the most Well, there's two main recommend. I mean, there's two main recommendations I would have. Um, one is private, uh, you know, companies, or not public companies, but but not government. And the other would be government. Um, one is that uh, a lot of our solutions right now 
in the workplace for equity are uh, both they're programmatic, not systemic, and they focus on uh, fixing um, people versus fixing the system. And our system is inequitable by default. It's not equitable by design. Mm. So examples of programmatic uh, solutions that we've heard a lot about are implicit bias training, right? That's companies spend $8 billion a year on implicit bias training. The research shows that it doesn't work and it can actually make bias worse because it uh, uses stereotypes. Um, the, that's one. The second is uh, annual pay gap audits. Again, super well intended, but essentially it's an ever moving target. And, and by, by doing that, you're essentially saying, well, our system is not is is inequitable. And so what we need to do is to um, and and really that you have to choose to be equitable versus changing the decision making system where if it's equitable by design. Now, I don't have to like I have to do almost nothing and equity will be embedded, which is really what pipeline was designed to do, which was to is to take um, people decisions like internal hiring, so mobility, pay, performance, potential promotion, run them through our systems before they're made and ensure that they're actually equitable. Right. So that with every people decision, you're actually moving toward equity. And we've seen really positive results. On average, our customers increase equity by 67% in the first three months on the platform. So, so that's one thing for companies. In the public sphere, which I, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I don't deal with as much, but I do talk about because it impacts all of us. We need um, some type of federal legislation. Well, we definitely need the um, Equal Rights Amendment, but we also need um, uh, to ensure that uh, we need federal legislation that ensures um, gender mainstreaming. So essentially looking at every policy, so similar to what Canada does, to ensure that it doesn't adversely impact men versus women and not by men. Yeah. Well, th that's a, it, it feels like it's a, it's, it's a, accessible place to start despite you know you know the state of the state of congress not really being able to pull together to pass any legislation, legislation for, for most of the last 20 years and um i do want to ask you not to like whitewash what we're talking about or um bring in uh, like a, a doe-eyed idealism or optimism to the conversation but there's there's a couple of things i wanted to ask you about Katika, about where the pay gap is headed in my research uh you know in the the cold open i should say i cited the the pay gap uh, according to pew research and some data that was released um on march 1st 2023 one thing that i found noteworthy in their reporting was that they said that the wage gap was smaller for women workers ages 25 to 34 and the pay gap for for that bracket of women was 92% or 92 cents on the dollar, uh, for, which is much better than the 82% for women overall over the ages of 16 years old in the workforce. Is this, is that change, is that difference for those women age 25 to 34, 
is that indicative of something that's happening in American society with women entering the workforce from that, what was it, the 58%, what did you say that it was, of, of women who are undergraduates now in higher education? Um, some of that's true, you know, in terms of women being higher educated. Um, I, there's one thing, though, that people should understand <clears throat> about uh, education. Uh, on average, uh, uh, a woman with a uh, education doesn't completely close the gap. And mm. uh, well, so, not the least of which because of the student loan debt that we already talked about, right? But um, but just for the pay gap, like the money coming into women's wallets, for instance, yes. a woman with a bachelor degree earns the same as a man with an associate's degree. A woman with a um, a master's degree earns the same as a man with a bachelor's degree. So mm. it's still, it's, um, it's like the more education you have, the bigger the gap that it, it, there actually is. So oh, wow. that, that is important, important. It's like the older you are, the higher you go. So the more senior you are in a company, um, mm-hmm. the older you are and the more education you have, the larger the gaps are. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't get your education. You, have to, you should absolutely do that. It's just that, when we look from a labor economics perspective at education attainment wages and labor force participation, we should understand that education attainment, while the foundation of all that is not innately going to solve everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would also venture to guess that certainly education has to do with it, but also there um, sort of bef- that, that and, I, and without my hypothesis about that, without actually looking at the data at, like at a detailed level, is that they're pre-childbearing years, uh-huh. and so once you uh, once you go to have children, then you actually begin to see that gap. That, that um, makes sense. Yeah, right. and um, and even the perception of being of childbearing age can lower your pay as well. Hmm. So, Katika. I'm curious to ask you about the future of your work and where you kind of see or sense the vision of your work going, whether, you know, it's in the next year or the next several years. What's your sense about where you're going to be focusing your work, your attention, your energy as, as an advocate, an, advo- uh, an advocate, an activist, uh, you know, a founder, a speaker? Um, where do you see your attention going in the, in the coming years? Well, my focus is... Um obviously to continue and to expand the work that I've already done. Um, And also uh, really twofold. One is continuing, you know, I do a lot of research and what I often find are folks that are missing from the narrative around equity. So breadwinning moms would be an example of that. Um, And there are others for sure. Um, But looking at where, because for instance, like, if you talk to the media, they will say, oh, well, if we had childcare uh, and, <laughs> and it's like, well, that would help, but it's not actually the primary reason why women left the labor force during the pandemic, right? They left because they were in industries and sectors that were most impacted. Um, they made up the majority of the labor force and in equity, like we actually had a huge leap forward in terms of digital acceleration during the pandemic and women didn't have equitable access to skilling. So they weren't qualified. So, and there was, essentially there wasn't equity of opportunity. So um, 
the narrative piece is really important because when we have new narratives informed by research and data, then we have new solutions. So that, and always through the lens of the economic opportunity of investing in those solutions, uh, you know, a return on investment. And so that will always be and continue to be my work, um, as well as wherever possible, influencing our elected officials to do better. Well, thank you for that. On behalf of, of those of us who don't have the ears of presidential candidates uh, day to day, but um, you mentioned the new narratives. And on a show like The New Story is talking about new narratives. Um, can we ask you, as a, as a parting question, we've had a, a long, sprawling conversation with, about a lot of different topics, and a lot of different ideas. And at the risk of kind of cheapening our conversation down to like a sound bite, I am curious to ask you a question I tend to ask our guests, which is, what do you want the new story to be? So for you coming down to the subject of gender equity, um, when some when you imagine somebody hearing the phrase gender equity, what do they think of now? And what would you like them to start understanding the, the narrative possibility to be in the future? Many people now hear gender equity and think women's rights. Gender equity is not a synonym for women's rights. Women are half the conversation and men are the other half of the conversation. Non-binary folks are also part of the conversation. Right. Um, and, not, and not just because men hold the majority of all leadership positions in uh, companies, right? I think they're 68% of leaders of companies worldwide. But actually, because also because gender inequity impacts men too, we just don't talk about it. And we need to talk about it. You know, it's great that, for instance, women are 58% of college graduates, but the um, educational attainment of men and boys has gone down. That that should be also something that we're focusing on, right? That that's not you don't that's that's something that we should be talking. So one would be for folks to think about it as everyone impacted by the gender equity conversation. The second piece is for folks to understand that it's an economic opportunity, that when you actually look at it, uh, you can find, for instance, like um, student loans are not only, uh, they're also a retirement crisis, right? The, the fact that women hold 67% of student loans is connected to the fact that uh, among people 65 and older, women are twice as likely to live in poverty than men. Those two things are connected because if folks could put the money that they're putting into their education into retirement, they would have that a lot more money in retirement. So we, we need to, to understand, oh, there's the dogs again. <laughs> There's the connection between those. those. So that's what I want them to think of. Gender equity means is talking about everyone. Um, I, clearly, my dog agrees. And, uh, that's right. But she's, I don't know what she's working at. And then the second is um, that it's an economic opportunity. Absolutely. Well, I mean, dogs are always welcome on this show so far as me as a dog lover is concerned. But Katika, thank you so much. Katika Roy, she's the founder and CEO of Pipeline Equity. You can find her and her work at katikaroy.com and learn more about Pipeline Equity at pipelineequity.com. Katika, thank you for your education on all these subjects. 
you've left me with a lot to think about and I could speak to you for hours. So, uh, but I, but I thank you for the hour that you've been so kind as to give to us. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. And thank you as always for listening to this episode of the new story is if you're feeling generous today, if you're feeling good, if you enjoyed what we talked about, please follow or subscribe to our show, especially if you're listening on Apple podcasts and Spotify. So you never miss a new episode. You can also leave us a rating and review on those platforms. Smash that five stars for us to help others know that what we're doing is legit and worth listening to. It goes a long way into helping us find new listeners. We have a slew of new episodes coming your way in the coming months. Over six new interviews coming. Stay tuned. Stick around. Share the episode with a friend. Thank you for being here. And until next time, story on.